If you would, though, would you turn over a few more pages to 1 Corinthians 15? 1 Corinthians 15, I also want to read another passage for you. 1 Corinthians 15 is 58 verses, which is basically one big long answer to a question. The Corinthian church had a question, and that was about resurrection unto life, because they were doubting it. They were wondering if people really did rise from the dead. In fact, if you read all of Paul's answer, he goes through quite a ride in extensively answering this. But I love the last portion of this chapter, which is tragically almost exclusively only read at funerals of Christians. But I think it is something as Christians we should read more often together. And so 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, Paul concludes his answer to this question And he says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. And then he says, behold, and I love that Paul said exclamation point. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, so because of all of that, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, and here's the reason, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And indeed, may God add His blessing to the reading of His Word this morning once again. I don't know if you realize this, but I am in a house where I have to realize this. It is now November, and in just two short months it will be Christmas. And I don't know if you glee with excitement or sigh with resignation, but I arrived home to Christmas music playing in my home and Christmas card decorations and all of these types of things. And can you believe that in just a couple of months it will be Christmas of 2018? Can you believe that? 2018 is almost gone. Can you remember all the fuss over the year 2000? You remember all the fuss back then? All of the different things that we were warned about, all the companies that put all kinds of things in place when the computers were going to roll over those double zeros. I remember because it was the last year I lived here before I moved to PEI, and I remember watching and waiting if the world would end at midnight of 2000. And because this was the place in North America where it happened first, CBS and ABC and NBC and CNN all sent reporters downtown St. John's, Newfoundland on New Year's Eve to put a camera and a microphone into semi or fully inebriated people to ask them what they thought was going to happen at midnight. And I just remember that it came and it went. 
It came and it went, and here we are 18 years later. The older I get, the more I realize how I get into just rhythms. I get into the rhythm of living, a pattern of life. And before you know it, Sundays just start to pile up and events start to happen in people's lives. Oh, occasionally you get something that kind of rocks your world or shakes your attention. But the older you get, the more you get into rhythm and the more you like your rhythm to stay the same. And you just don't like change. Or you start to not notice how quickly stuff goes by you. And so here we are at another Sunday, the first Sunday of November, the Lord's Table Sunday for us at Calvary, communion. But I want to just draw your attention to a couple of things because communion is but one of only two distinguishing practices of the worshiping Christian along with baptism. Communion is an essential part of the life of a true church. We've learned that in Sunday school. We know that it was given by Jesus to His disciples at the Last Supper and just before His death. Communion. I don't know if you realize it though, for the big fuss we make about it in our churches, it might surprise you to realize that only Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John describe communion. It's referred to in Acts in passing simply as the breaking of bread, And then the only other passage it makes an appearance is what Brother Paul just read to you as a church, and it's not all at all in flattering terminology. In fact, it's written almost as a challenge. And so today on November, our first Sunday in November, almost coming to Christmas, I want to ask us all to maybe just stop and to think deeply about what it is we're going to do in just a few minutes. To think deeply of communion, not passively, not in the routine, not in, well, this is what we do. To ask ourselves some questions this morning as individuals, as couples, as a family, as a church, and allow God's Word in a very First Timothy way to challenge us or encourage us, to instruct us, or yes, even to correct us or rebuke us. For in so doing, the Word of God will make us more into the image of Christ and, believe it or not, closer to each other. And so I want us to start with this. I want to make a claim here as one of the elders of this church to you, the people of this church, and at the end, see if you think I'm correct or not, because I believe my understanding is we claim here at Calvary that communion is an ordinance of Jesus and the church, that is... We understand and believe and practice communion as something commanded by Jesus, given to us by Jesus, and practiced by the church. After all, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, correct? Yes or no? I'll get into passive, so let's get me a heart. Amen? All right, there we go. i just just checking, all right? But I want you to think about all the different terminology of communion. Some people call it communion. Some people call it holy communion. Some people call it the Lord's Supper. Some the Lord's Table. Some would call it the breaking of bread. And then there's this term that was very popular and has fallen out of favor, the Eucharist. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I'm a curious kind of person. I've, I've grown up wondering this. I've studied this a lot as a pastor. Is one term better or righter than another term? Is only one of all of those terms correct and the others wrong? And what I would submit to you this morning, it's not about either or, but both and. You will find all of these expressions in some way laid out in your Bible. In the book of Acts, that term, as I mentioned earlier, the breaking of bread, is exclusive to Dr. Luke. Only does he ever refer to it in his, in his uh, two-part uh, documentary of the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. It's the only way he describes this event that we would call the Lord's Table or the Lord's Supper. And I would suggest that it reminds us of the early church's commitment to enjoying this holy meal in unity and togetherness. It was breaking of bread. In fact, it's the description It's always connected in the book of Acts with frequency and togetherness. And they were daily breaking bread and together with each other. And so it's like the book of Acts wants us to understand that when the church got together, this was something they did to display their unity and their togetherness. Now, the term that we would probably use most often here at Calvary is the Lord's table or the Lord's supper. It's our term that comes from 1 Corinthians that Paul just read about. And this reminds us that it is indeed the Lord's table, not ours. I hope you don't miss that. This meal is given to us by Jesus for us and for our sakes. It is a gift from and through Jesus, one that we are not only to celebrate, but listen to me, emulate. Consider what Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. Remember what he said? For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I don't know about you, but I have often been bothered by that sentence. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Why couldn't it be you proclaim his resurrection? Or you, you, because you miss something here. It's Paul telling this church, when you celebrate the Lord's table, and it's really the Lord's table, you will act in such a way as to emulate the one you're celebrating. So in other words, you take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow Him. You emulate the Lord's death. You die to self. You are self-sacrificing for the cause of others. And therefore, when we do that collectively and together and with unity, we proclaim, we, we act out, we example the Lord's death until He comes. This is our calling to do this. This is the significance of what's down here. This is so much more than a ritual. Then comes that word that we don't use very often at all, the Eucharist. I think that in modern evangelical circles, this word scares us because of sometimes what other groups or denominations have done with it. Yet the word itself, the Eucharist, actually means in the Greek, giving thanks. And should remind us of all the blessings God has given us through Jesus Christ, His Son. So don't be afraid of this word. It is a part of of our liturgy. It is a part of who we are. It is a part of what this table represents. And then, of course, finally, there's Holy Communion. And that's a term to remind us that we not only commune, but it's a holy communion. It's a communion with God and with each other at the table of the Lord. And we should see the connection of finding forgiveness and strength from God and towards each other from this expression. This morning, this is where we openly declare and visually express our one body with each other as a church. 
And so for the purpose of going forth in ministry, this holy communion is where we come together for God's glory and our good. See, see what happens if you take just a few minutes to think deeply about something that we can just get into routines and habits of doing? How much more there is here? Now, according to what Paul read in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that communion has several elements to it. And when I say this, when I say there are several elements, you might think bread or juice, or you might think, okay, well, there's going to be prayer, and there's going to be Scripture read, and there's going to be an admonishment to know Jesus, and then there's going to be the distribution of the bread and the grape juice. But Paul is talking about a lot more than just administration, if you look at it. He's also talking over and over again, if you noticed, in 17 to 34, at least five times he talks about remembrance, and in another way he talks about memorial. And I think that's fitting. I always love it when communion falls on a Sunday where we also celebrate Remembrance Day. In just a week's time, Remembrance Day will hit. Many of you, as I look out, have your poppy on. It is a fit memorial where our our way of remembrance for our veterans and those who are currently serving. But let me ask you this. How many memorials do we have in the St. John's area or across Newfoundland or indeed across Canada? How many memorials do you think there are around the world? I would, count, I would say to you that there are literally hundreds, if not thousands, but what is important is they all have things in common as memorials. And so it is when we come to this memorial or communion, I would suggest that this one is very similar but has one very important difference. You see, on Remembrance Day next Sunday, we will remember. And the truth is, for some, if not all of us, I hope we will have a time of sorrow as we think of the sacrifices that have been paid for you and I to gather here like this without fear of retribution. We will be thankful. We will give thanks for those that have served and those that are serving. And we will acknowledge our duty to remember. And some of us might even have a duty to go and fight. But perhaps most importantly, this week we will resolve. And let me explain that. I had to get a chance the opportunity to go to Israel back a few years ago. And part or the highlight of every trip I've taken to Israel is to go to a place called Masada. And Masada is this wonderful Herodian fortress that was built by Herod the Great. And it sticks up just over the Dead Sea, 1,600 feet uh, above the Dead Sea. And so that's the Dead Sea is about 1,200 feet below sea level. So at the top of Masada, you're about 400 feet above sea level. And you have this beautiful, picturesque view of the Judean mountains as it heads up towards Jerusalem. What I didn't know is how significant Masada is in Israel's history as it was the last place to fall in AD 70 when Titus and the Romans came and sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple for the last time and made it what it is today where no stone was left unturned. And in fact, 900 Jews escaped out of Jerusalem and hid in Masada. And the the fierceness and the pride of the Roman Empire was rather than let 900 Jews alone up in Masada, for three and a half years, Titus the general had his army build a ramp, 1,600 feet of dirt, up from the bottom, 
all the way to the top of Masada simply so they could capture those 900 Jews. For in the Roman mind it was, that represents a weakness to the empire. It took them three and a half years to do this. Now the resolve of the Jews was on the night that the walls were breached, they decided it would rather, they would rather fa- face death than enslavement. And the night before they came in to attack and overtake it, there was a mass suicide by the Jewish residents and no one was left. This is 2,000 years later. And to this day, when the IDF, those that get to the Green Beret level in the IDF, do all of their military training and they pass all of their things, they go on a 25-mile hike with all of their garb on, and at the very end of it, they have to hike up to what's called the Snake Path of Masada, and they get up to the very top of that, so 1,600 feet, basically vertical, after a 25-mile hike in full uniform, they get up, and then they get over at the end of Masada, and they yell out this Hebrew expression that echoes out over the Judean wilderness. And you know what it is? It's this. Masada will never fall again. To this day, they still do that in Israel. They are resolved to not let this happen again. I would counter this morning as we are going to now, this is where memorial and remembrance as the world does it and where we as a church does it splits paths. Let me show you. Number one, remembering. We are called here this morning, thinking deeply about the table of the Lord, to remember. In Luke twenty-two nineteen, and he took bread, Jesus, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In remembrance of me. The psalmist said, sing unto the Lord, O ye saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. Jesus told his disciples, One of my favorite verses. I hope this motivates you to read your Bible. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. I love to read my Bible, and I've loved to have memorized this verse because it reminds me that when I need it, God will help His Word to come to my mind. In the Old Testament, in Exodus 3.15, Moses told the people of Israel, God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, He has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So one of the things that communion and memorial or remembrance has is remembrance. Another thing we have in common is sorrow. Sorrow. Sorrow was a part of every memorial. You cannot come to the table of the Lord or remember without sorrow. Remember, we're going to get to it in a few weeks in John 11.35 as Jesus looked upon the crowds of people crying before the tomb of Lazarus with Mary and Martha wailing and weeping and all those people. And it says, Jesus wept. He was sorrowful. In Luke 19 and 23, Jesus prayed with tears and passion over Jerusalem, and he begged Jerusalem. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you only knew who I was, you would come to me and know that I would mother you as a hen mothers her chicks. The disciples experienced the sorrow of Jesus' death. And friends, with any and every memorial will come sorrow, because we must face the price of the memorial. The fact that we are going to celebrate this table reminds us that there had to be death. 
There had to be suffering. There was pain and brokenness and consequences, and it came because of us. It was us that caused this. As I heard 1 Corinthians 11 and we read 1 Corinthians 15, did you see what the absence of sorrow did when Paul read it? The absence of godly sorrow meant that the church cheapened and mocked the table of the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 15, where they doubted the resurrection into life, what did it cause? It causes hopelessness and despair and doubting and questions. And so you see the, the thing. If you don't have sorrow, then you'll either cheapen something or mock it, or you will doubt and despair. But then the contradiction of emotions comes thankfulness and joy. If we're going to come to this table of the Lord, we need to have thankfulness and joy, right? In 1 Peter 1, Peter said, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. If we're going to have the table of the Lord mean something for us today, you must be and always will be thankful and joyful at the memorial. We give thanks to those, right, in Remembrance Day who've served and have served, who gave up their rights for the rights of others, who laid down their lives. And we also have the joy as the battle is over. Sons and daughters have come home. The fighting is done. And so Paul is asking the Corinthians and us, where is our thankfulness and joy towards Jesus Christ and towards each other? And Calvary, listen to me. You cannot be thankful for salvation if you're not thankful for your other Christians in this church. The next is duty. There comes duty as we come to the table of the Lord. Paul reminds the Corinthians that Jesus had a duty to fulfill, and that duty was then passed on to us. Paul read about that. To do the will of God our Father, we are called to be like Christ in Ephesians. This should be the greatest display of communion. That is what 1 Corinthians 11 is all about. That's what 1 Timothy 4 is all about. It's what the author of Hebrews meant when he said, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Why? Looking to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, notice the joy where his duty comes from, Endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So we are duty-bound, not only to remember, but to defend. We are duty-bound to reflect in our lives what was given on our behalf. We're duty-bound to uphold the values and virtues of those who have died and served. And so, folks, listen, Jesus lived and died to save us and to love us and to serve us, and thus we are called to love each other and serve each other and forgive each other and care for one another And always remember, love means putting another before your interests. Love means putting another's interests before your interests. And again, I have to say this. If you're already thinking of how someone should be doing that for you, then you're missing it. Love is putting other people's interests before your interests. And so we have remembrance and sorrow. We have thanksgiving and joy. We have duty But this is where we're going to part ways as we come to the table of the Lord. For in Remembrance Day, we have resolve. But communion is about restoration and reunion. You see, next Sunday across Canada, folks will gather and remember 
They'll be sorrowful and thankful, duty-bound, and as a result, will resolve. What I told you about in Israel will happen here. We'll do our very best to pray that these types of wars won't happen again. We'll resolve not to let it happen again, but we know it will likely repeat itself, won't it? No matter how hopeful we are, we actually believe there will be another war. There will be another fight. I just met with a couple of brothers this past week who just returned from tours in Afghanistan. And they were telling me about experiences that they had over there. And the reality is for us, he said, you guys think we're at peace, but we're not. And it was all a matter of perspective. Because I live in the peace. They go and defend it. And so it was amazing to me. But not communion. Not here. We don't have to be resolved here because we remember today, and yes, we will feel sorrowful around this table of the Lord, and we will be thankful, and we have a duty to it. But it's not just a resolve, but a promise because this table says it's a finished work and a final word. Amen? Amen. Somebody wake up, please. Here we go. All right? In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. You see, because Jesus fought this fight, the fight is over. There is no more fights. Okay, yes, you and I will have our struggles this side of the kingdom, but Jesus does not have to come again. He does not have to die again. Satan, sin, and death are defeated. Amen? There we go. In Revelation chapter 19, Everybody loves Revelation 21, but I actually think my favorite chapter of Revelation is chapter 19. It's where Handel got his Messiah, his Hallelujah chorus out of Revelation 19. Listen to these words. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, or Hallelujah, all you, his servants. You who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen, notice, is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. You see, here's the difference between a memorial and communion. We have the hope and promise that this memorial will indeed one day become a feast. Amen? This is what awaits you and I. You see, the Corinthians played with their love feasts. They turned the future glory of God into cheap knockoffs. And this, my friends, will always lead to doubt, which is why they're doubting the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. And so as we come to the table of the Lord, let me ask you something very quickly, and then I'll be done. Be honest with me about something here. Would any of you in this room be willing to admit, I know about the resurrection, but I don't know if I believe in it. Now, you be honest. How many of you in here might be honest enough to say, oh, I've been taught about the resurrection, but I have doubts in the resurrection. I doubt it sometimes. 
Or how many of you might be willing to say, Steve, listen, I've, ta- I've been taught it, I've studied it, I've read about it, I've heard you preach and others preach to me over the years here at this church and other churches, but you know what? I don't know if I understand the resurrection. Truly get it. You see, I believe there are people like that sitting here in front of me. Some of you might not really believe in it. Some of you doubt it. Many of you, I don't wonder if you really understand it. And I don't think you're alone. Now imagine with me for a moment a church like the one at Corinth. They're gifted with all sorts of spiritual gifts, yet they seriously doubted the resurrection. Well, for some, it was their Jewish background. For others, it was their Gentile pagan background. But for others, it was simply the time lapse between hearing the gospel and what was happening all around them. And the older I get, the more I'm starting to understand this. The more the rhythms of the life become my pattern of life, the more I see the cycle of life happen. I'm getting to that age now. I got a phone call. as I think I asked you guys to pray about this for me. My, my mom is scheduled to have her hip replaced in just about a month, and we've been waiting for this, but we got a call because the doctors are concerned because her two carotid arteries up both sides of her neck are severely blocked, and they're quite concerned about whether or not she'll survive the surgery. And so my dad and her have to make some serious decisions about having this done. Does she have the chronic pain or does she do it and have a, the risk of something going wrong with some plaque escaping and having a massive stroke? And I'm reminded of the cycle of life. And I realize, man, when you just live life long enough, you can start to doubt what was one day very wondrous to you. Very mysterious. Weariness has something Paul was something Paul wrote about before, right? In Galatians 6 9, and let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. See, we can celebrate this and we give head knowledge and verbal assent to the idea of the resurrection unto life and all of these types of things, but often we can be bogged down into the dredges of death. Someone has written. There's a preacher of the old school, but he speaks as boldly as ever. He is not popular, though the world is his church, and he travels every part of the globe and speaks in every language. He visits the poor and calls upon the rich, preaches to the people of every religion and no religion, and the subject of his sermon is always the same. He is an eloquent preacher, often stirring feelings which no other preacher could, and brings tears to eyes that never weep. His arguments none are able to refute, nor is there any heart that has remained unmoved by the force of his appeals. He shatters life with his message. Most people hate him. Everyone fears him. His name? Death. Every tombstone is his pulpit. Every newspaper prints his text. And someday every one of you will be his sermon. That's the power of of death, and we can grow weary in well-doing, and we can lose our focus unless you realize that the difference between the idea of remembering and sorrow and thanks and duty is not resolved, but for the table of the Lord, it's restoration, it's reunion. I don't know if you know about this, but I love, I have a book called The Last Words of Saints and Sinners, and the last chapter tells me of different people of history and what they have written on their tombstones, and one of my favorite is Ben Franklin. On his tombstone, it says, The body of Benjamin Franklin, printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding, 
lies here food for worms. But the work will not be lost, for it will appear once more in a new and more elegant edition, revised and corrected by the author. What an amazing thing to have written on your tombstone. My friends, that's the hope of the Christian and the message of all. In chapter 15, that's why I read you those verses. Did you see it? In chapter 15, verses 50 to 53, you have the great transformation. Did you see it? The great transformation. Because that is what is incorruptible cannot inherit that which is corruptible. And that's why Paul said, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. And then in verses 54 and 56, we see the great triumph. We see that great triumph when he, when he says, at the last trump, and, and I love this, R.C.H. Linsky writes, death is not merely destroyed so that it cannot do harm further, while all of the harm which, is had, which it has wrought on God's children remains. No, the tornado is not merely checked so that no additional homes are wrecked, while those that were wrecked still lie in ruin. Here's what he says, death and all of its apparent victories are undone for God's children. What looks like a victory for death and like a defeat for us when our bodies die and decay shall be utterly reversed so that death dies in absolute defeat and our bodies live again in absolute victory. This is the promise that we have. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 quotes Isaiah 25 and Isaiah 13. And I love this. He actually taunts death. He says, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, grave, where is your sting? He taunts death. And notice in verse 57, you have the great thanksgiving. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. And don't you worry, it's getting louder in here because I'm preaching God's victory. And Jesus, Satan doesn't want you paying attention to that. So that's why you're all looking up wondering if the roof's going to blow off. Because if I'm doing what I'm doing right, then Satan doesn't want you listening. And then finally, there's the great exhortation in verse 58. Be steadfast, unmovable. John MacArthur makes this statement. What a word Paul gives to the countless Christians who work and pray and give and suffer as little as they can. How can we be satisfied with the trivial, insignificant, short-lived things of the world? How can we take it easy when so many around us are dead spiritually and so many fellow believers are in need of edification and encouragement and help of every sort? When can the Christian say, I've served my time, I've done my part, let others do the work now? Folks, listen, we know that our labor is not in vain. This table is one where we remember, where we are sorrowful, where we will give thanks and have joy, where we have a duty. But we don't have to resolve here. We rejoice because Christ has finished the work. Our work for the Lord, it is truly for Him and done in His power, cannot fail to accomplish what He wants it to accomplish. Every good work believers do in this life has eternal benefits that the Lord Himself guarantees. And that is the attitude and the posture that we should come to the table of the Lord with this morning. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to make much of you. 
Lord, I thank you for the privilege of feeling inadequate and weak and yet realizing that that's exactly the safest place for me to be for it gives me a wonderful view of you. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning that they too, as we come to the table of the Lord, holy communion, the breaking of bread, the Eucharist to give thanks, that this would be more than routine or ritual or simply the thing we do at the beginning of the month and at the end of a service. But this would be the fuel of reminder that we will remember what you have done for us and we will be sorrowful that it was our sin that put your Son on a cross. Our sin that had to be atoned for. And Father God, your wrath, your holy righteousness and wrath had to be poured out on Jesus Christ to suffer in our place. May we be joyful and thankful that He did it. May we have a duty to be like Him because He overcame it. But may we move beyond resolution and hopes that maybe this will not happen again. But the confident assurance that because Jesus said it is finished, it is in my life and my brothers' and sisters' lives here. And so may this communion mean something today. That it is a communion with you and a communion with each other. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen.